0: Hey there, we are in part four of a series that we've called Coming Together, How to Live with Other People. Now this series is about us all getting better at being in relationships together, whether it's in our friendships, whether it's in the workplace, ultimately in the church as well, the community that Jesus invited his followers to belong to and build up. So if you've missed any, you can go back and catch up on YouTube, just search Hawley Baptist Church, and you can also pick up a copy of the book that this series is based on, Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them, by John Ortberg. It's really easily available online, or better still, find somebody who's already paid for it and ask to borrow their copy. Now, in this session in the series, we're looking at one thing which makes the difference between a good friendship, which hopefully most of us have with at least one or two people, and a great friendship, which we all want, but which requires something that most people, myself included, often try to avoid. Before we get there, though, there's one thing we touched on at the beginning of this series that we need to circle back around to. And that's the fact that before we bring anybody else into the equation, before we enter into any kind of relationship with any person, we have to acknowledge one thing about ourselves. And that's that we've got some imperfections, we've got some quirks, we've got some you know, sharp edges. And whilst other people can cause us some bother, to be completely honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we are capable of upsetting our own lives without needing anybody else to do it for us. Now, ever since video cameras were invented, there's one kind of entertainment which seems to hold universal appeal to us, and that's fail videos. We just seem to love watching people fall off things or watching things fall onto people for that matter. Now, this might just say more about me and my personality than anything else, but I always think when I watch them, Who is filming these and why are they letting their friend do something so blatantly stupid? You know, there are some where it's just so obvious that it's going to end in disaster. So I've actually developed a hypothesis about this. Here it is, case studies pending. People with friends who offer to film them doing stupid stuff don't live as long as people with friends who advise them against doing stupid stuff. Or as American pastor Andy Stanley puts it, Your friends determine the quality and the direction of your life. And here's why, and fail videos illustrate this perfectly. We don't always have the best view to see where we are, where we're headed, and what's coming our way. Sometimes other people can see something that we can't see ourselves. In a verse we looked at in week one of this series, the prophet Isaiah observed, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. That is, we all wander off from the path that we intended to travel along. We might resolve to do one thing, get fitter, quit drinking, or work harder, seek therapy, fix our marriages, be there for our families, reduce stress, or get control of our temper. But then we stray away from the path that we intended to walk. From my own life, right now, I'm reluctant to leave the house. Well, actually, right now I'm ill, so that's a good reason not to, but generally, since lockdown, I've just found myself feeling a bit lazy, a bit loath to put jeans on instead of leggings and get out of the front door, a bit reluctant to make weekend plans or turn Netflix off and go out in the evening. Now, I don't wanna be that person, but I don't feel like what I'm doing right now is God's best for me. So I've drifted, I've kind of gone astray, and we all drift. Now, you might be like me. You've just got a bit complacent, a bit lazy, a bit sort of passive recently. Maybe your faith life isn't exciting you anymore. You're just a bit kind of meh. Or it could be that your drifting may by now have landed you in a really difficult situation. And maybe you've got yourself into a mess and are wondering, how on earth did I get here? Thing is, we all go astray. The problem is seeing it, acknowledging it, correcting it. (laughs) That's hard to do. We don't always have the best view to see where we are, to see where we're headed and what might be coming our way. That's why it's easy to fail, but it's also why great friendships really matter because great friendships can produce something in our lives that we can't realize by ourselves. So we're gonna delve together into an ancient story today that demonstrates the perils of not being surrounded by great friendships and how one great friend can put us back on the path that we intended to walk on. You may well have come across this one before as the story of King David and Bathsheba. Now King David was God's anointed and chosen leader for the ancient nation of Israel. You can read about his story in 1 and 2 Samuel and it is a fascinating section of the biblical story which is really worth reading for yourself. But in a very famous chapter of David's life, he sleeps with a woman called Bathsheba, who's another man's wife and gets her pregnant. And as you can imagine, it has completely disastrous consequences. David completely strays from who God called him to be. So let's dive into this story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, particularly as it relates to friendships. Here's how it begins. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab, that's the commander of his military, and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. However, it says, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. So whilst all his comrades go off to war, which as a king is where David ought to be, really, leading his men, David decides to stay home alone. And we don't know why. Maybe, like me, he was just feeling a bit complacent at the time, a bit sort of passive. Who knows? But now he's back in Jerusalem with nobody even close to him in rank with him, and he's just kicking about the palace. And one day he goes up to the roof and he looks out over Jerusalem and he spots an attractive woman, Bathsheba, having a bath. And rather than looking away quickly and going back inside, as he should, he decides he wants this woman for himself. And so the text says, he sent someone, presumably somebody in his staff, to find out who she was. And they come back and they tell him, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Hey David, she's somebody's daughter and she's somebody's wife. (laughs) The problem is, who points this out to David? Well, the text just says, someone. Not one of David's trusted friends not somebody David needs to pay attention to or be accountable to. So why would David care what this guy thinks of him? Now, it's a dangerous position to be in when you don't have anybody around whose opinion of you, you value, because it gives you complete freedom to only act in accordance with what you think is right. And as we'll see, David ceases to think clearly about what is right in what follows. So David sleeps with Bathsheba and gets her pregnant and then to cover his tracks, he brings Uriah the husband back home from war to get him to sleep with her within a close enough time frame that he'll think the baby's his. But Uriah doesn't sleep with Bathsheba while he's home from war. So David decides to have the guy killed instead. He writes to Joab, his second in command, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest and then pull back so that he will be killed. Now David doesn't give a reason. He doesn't let his second-in-command in on the error he's made. And Joab clearly doesn't ask for further information. So Joab does maybe what some might argue a good friend would do. He's loyal to David. He does David a favor to get him out of a tight spot and he obeys his command. He doesn't ask any difficult questions. He just says, okay, I'll play along. So if we could characterize David and Joab's friendship at this point, it seems like this might be a fair appraisal. When it comes to the uncomfortable truth, don't ask and don't tell. Now, we've all got friendships that work like that, don't we? Friendships where we don't ask too many probing questions and we don't reveal too much of what's going on beneath the surface in our own lives. We might speak ambiguously. We might say things like, how are things? And they say, things are fine. And (laughs) we certainly don't allow ourselves to venture into more complicated conversational territory. In the book, John Ortberg calls this pseudo community. That is a poor imitation of what real community can be, where nobody ever truly shares their real lives and real selves with one another. It creates the kind of environment that allows people to drift from who they should be. And Joab and David opt for a poor imitation of great friendship. Joab doesn't ask, David doesn't tell, and Uriah is killed. Nobody suspects that this is anything but a tragedy other than David, Joab, and presumably Bathsheba, who David moves into his palace the minute she stops mourning her husband. And the chapter finishes by telling us, The Lord, who called David to be a great king, to lead with justice and love, and to walk in obedience to his way, the Lord was very displeased with what David had done. David had gone astray and nobody had got in his way. In fact, the closest man to his equal, Joab, had made it easier for him to steal the wife of another man. But God isn't finished with David. He doesn't abandon him, just as thankfully he doesn't abandon us when we go astray. He sends a prophet called Nathan, who David has had interactions with before, to help David recognize the uncomfortable truth about what he has done. Now, I can only imagine Nathan wasn't overly thrilled with the idea of confronting the king about his past failure. But Nathan obeys God and does for David what great friendship truly requires. Here's how the story continues. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. Now, David, hearing this story, was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. And then Nathan takes a breath and he does the hard thing that we must learn to embrace too if we are to have great saving friendships. He looks David steadily in the eye and he says, you are that man, David. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed, for you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. Unlike Joab, Nathan risks his own position as one of David's trusted people to confront the uncomfortable truth that David has drifted, so that David can get back on the path God had called him to walk on. Now what allows Nathan to do this? Why did God give Nathan this task. I think there are four important factors we should pay attention to, especially before we try to copy what Nathan does here with our friends. Firstly, Nathan and David ultimately agree on who David is called to be. David himself had signed up for the role of being God's servant for Israel. He knew what he was getting into and Nathan wants that same thing for him. Nathan's not imposing an idea of who David ought to be onto him. David has committed himself to the path that Nathan is helping him to get back onto. And we too, we can't decide for a friend what path they should follow, but we can remind a friend what they have previously said that they wanted to commit to. Secondly, David trusts Nathan and has gone to Nathan before for advice. Now you wouldn't necessarily know it just from this story but if you go back a little further in the story you'll discover that David had gone to Nathan in the past when he needed guidance on what God's will was. So David and Nathan have a foundation of trust already. We will get nowhere with confronting somebody about the truth of their actions no matter how right we are if they don't have previous experience which tells them that they can trust us. Thirdly Nathan doesn't just say it how he sees it. God actually gives him a story which allows David to see it clearly for himself. Notice that God gives Nathan this careful way to lay out the truth in front of David. And it's far more persuasive than simply bluntly hitting David over the head with the truth. If we're to try to help a friend see the uncomfortable truth, we would do well to consider carefully how we put it across the point isn't to be heard the point is that the friend understands fourthly nathan doesn't make himself responsible for what david will do next nathan just does what god asks of him he says his piece and then he allows god to work and he doesn't seek to control the situation any further this is quite a difficult one to do but if we confront an uncomfortable truth with a friend We need to recognise that they are responsible for themselves, not us. And we can't seek to control or coerce them to do things as we would like them to do it or to act on what we've said. Now, having said that, what happens next? What does David do in response? Well, it says, Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He finally says it out loud. Maybe it's the first time he's even admitted it to himself. He says, I've messed up. I've turned my back on what I know God wants. If you had to characterise David and Nathan's friendship here, you might put it this way. When it comes to the uncomfortable truth, do the hard thing and confront it. David needed somebody who had a different view on his life to point out to him where he had drifted and to help him get back on track and I need that, and you probably need that, and your friends probably need that too. Great friends remind us of, or maybe even confront us with, who we are meant to be, even if it risks making the relationship uncomfortable for a while. That's the difference between good friends and great friends. It made the difference for David. Good friends say, I'll go along with whatever you want to do. That's Joab. Great friends say, I'll help you be who you really want to be, even when you lose sight of it. That's Nathan. Now, this kind of great friendship doesn't happen by accident, probably because there's a bit of risk to it and because it is uncomfortable. So we have to be intentional about building a friendship that makes this possible. In churches, we often use this word accountability where we find people who can be a second pair of eyes on our lives and the direction we're headed in. Now often this kind of ends up just being used as a mechanism for somebody owning up when they fall back into a bad habit but it can be something way more than that actually. John Ortberg describes accountability this way and I really love how he puts it. He says accountability is a tool and a gift we give to one another to try to realise the growth we could never know all by ourselves. So the goal is to become more and more of who we are created and called to be and to get help in getting better, not only by letting somebody in on our worst moments, but by giving them proper access to who we are and who we feel called to be. But here's the big one. You can't have any accountability without accessibility notice david sends all his friends off to war and leaves himself alone and it's then that he makes his biggest mistake if only he had had his friends who were around enough to see him slipping and to notice a change in his behavior as he tried to cover up his faults we actually have to grant one or two friends regular enough access to us if they're going to be able to speak properly into our lives. So going silent on friends for weeks at a time or only letting them in on your life via your Instagram story or only meeting up once a year probably won't cut it. If somebody's going to see what you don't see, then they actually need to see you often. (laughs) So let me give you four simple steps to take off the back of this. If you want a great friendship where you can keep each other from straying from who you want to be. Here's how you can find the Nathan to your David. Number one, find somebody you trust. Number two, share with them who you want to be. If you're a follower of Jesus, a good place to start is I wanna be more like Christ in this area of my life. But you might say something like, do you know I keep losing my temper at my family I want to be someone who can deal with things calmly so now you've invited your friend to help you with that you've given them permission to walk with you in that three give them regular access regular access so that they can actually see how you're getting along so that they can come alongside you and say can i pray for you can i encourage you not to give up Maybe they'll see that you're a little stressed generally and that's why you're losing your temper and they can say, hey, do you wanna go out for a beer? Do you wanna do something about it together? Four, practice confronting uncomfortable truths with them. Practice saying the bits you're not so proud of. Practice asking proper questions to your friends, not just surface level questions. Can you imagine the difference that that could make in hebrews a book in the new testament the writer says and we'll finish here let us consider let us give some thought to how to spur one another on towards love and good deeds let's consider that if you're a follower of jesus you have an amazing calling on your life it's not one you want to stray from But it can be so easy to do, can be so easy to stray from the path you're running on without somebody spurring you on. So if you want to stay the course, if you want to grow, if you want to get better at the things you want to be better at, seek out a great friendship that helps you stick with your Heavenly Father and do all the amazing things that He has for you to do. Wherever you are on your faith journey, this is a great next step. And hey, don't shy away from being the great friend who calls out in others everything they are truly created to be. Let's pray quickly as I finish. Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of David. Thank you that after his stray away from you, you brought him back. Thank you that his story did not end there and that our story doesn't need to end with our biggest failures or our biggest mistakes. But firstly, we are forgiven and accepted because of your grace. And secondly, you want to do more in us than our past would tell us we could do. That actually you want to bring people into our lives who can spur us on to do all the things that you created us for, the things that you called us for. Help us to have the courage to find people who we can build great, friendships with. People who will confront the uncomfortable truths with us so that we don't stray from all you have for us. I pray particularly for anybody who is feeling particularly lonely or struggling with friendships in this season of their life. I pray that you would bring one person along or that they would have the courage to ask one person to come a little bit closer to them in their life and give them regular access so that they can build that relationship in Jesus name. Amen. Here are some questions for you to consider as you try to pursue great friendships with others that help you and help your friends stay the course and become everything you and they were created to be.